Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. As you know, we are in a sermon series looking at the life of King David from First and Second Samuel. And this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel uh, 25. This is a super long chapter, so I'm going to be reading, reading the abridged version that's printed in your order of worship. So you can uh, read along or you can just listen as I read. A certain man in Maon who had property there in, at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and to your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that, you, that it is sheep shearing time. And when your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable towards my men since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. Nabal answered David's servant, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. And David said to them, Each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. And one of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us. And the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master And his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seahs of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, Go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there was David and his men descending towards her, and she met them. She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay attention, my lord. Please pay no attention, my lord, to what the wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and his folly goes with him. As for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. David said to Abigail, 
Praise be the Lord to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet. And so, Father, I pray by your spirit that you would guide us to King Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Father, may we cling to him this morning. May we receive his grace and may we find our place in this story. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was in grad school, I bought what I thought was a great computer bag that I imagined would last me for years to come. Now, because I was living off student loans, I intentionally chose a bag with a lifetime warranty. But after having the the bag for a few months, the Velcro that closes the bag stopped working. So I confidently sent off an email to to the company expecting that they would either fix it or replace the bag. But to my surprise, they wrote back saying, sorry, if you notice the fine print, the Velcro is specifically excluded from the warranty. I got to say, as an entitled consumer, I was outraged and offended. And of course, this was the time before Yelp and Google reviews, so I resorted to writing an email with all caps and in bold, something to the effect of this. This is the condensed version, of course. Dear customer service representative, if you don't make this right, I will never buy anything from your company again. Now, I guess I didn't phase them because I never heard back from them. But what I was trying to do in that moment was to somehow make them pay for violating my customer is always right expectation. Now, I know that this is a ridiculous example. But what isn't ridiculous is that even with a minor insult like this, my heart's desire is to strike back. And you and I know that this impulse only gets uglier and bigger as the insult or injury hits closer to home. Sometimes the weapons we bring are flimsy like mine were, but sometimes we can do a lot of damage. Our story finds David on the verge of great destruction, not only of others, but also of himself. As we read, David is hiding out in the wilderness with 600 soldiers which is a lot of mouths to feed. And the custom of the day was that when a lord was in an area, he would act as protector for the farmers and the shepherds and resulting in more profits for the landowners. And in return, the landowners would show hospitality by providing provision, especially during the boom time of harvest. So David has done his part in this customary exchange. And when he hears that Nabal is shearing sheep in Carmel... He sends 10 young men with a polite request to Nabal with the expectation that he would do his part. But Nabal replies to his request with insults and accusation. He says, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered with my, for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? Now, to be clear, Nabal knows exactly who David is. David has saved Israel from the Philistines, and everyone has heard the song about David. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. 
David is a big deal. And the message that Nabal sends back to David with a sneer is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Now, if we were to pause for a moment and we were to put ourselves in David's shoes, how would we respond to a guy like Nabal, belittling our achievements and our good name? Well, merely based on the data from my satchel uh, snafu, I have an idea of how I would respond. But what does your past data tell you about your heart's response? How do you respond when someone fails to notice or honor your contributions as you think you deserve? How do you respond to a roommate who is demanding and hard to live with? To a spouse or a friend who refuses to understand your perspective, your point of view? To a stranger who belittles or mocks you on social media? To live in the human community, which we all do, is to be sinned against. David's story is our story. So what desire do you contend with in your heart when, you, when people fail to treat you with love, honor, or respect? Well, we see David's response. David is on edge. Now, it could be his physical hunger or his anxiety because he is being chased by King Saul who wants to kill him. It could be grief due to the fact that his mentor, the prophet Samuel, has just died. But regardless of the trigger, David's response is a classic overreaction. David says, every man strap on your sword. Nabal and his whole house are dead. Rachel and I have been watching a show about mob families in the Midwest. It's a great show. And David's response reminds me of something a mob boss would do and say. In a flash, David has switched roles from victim to victimizer. Now you and I don't respond to insults by strapping on broad swords on our waists. But we all have our ways of going on the attack. We all have barbs that we know will strike at the core of someone. And so when you lash out to strike, what weapons do you choose to employ? Some of us go on the attack with raw anger. We let ourselves get really big and scary and intimidate people into backing down. And usually... This gets employed behind closed doors with people who have less power than us. And where we can't get away with that, we use more subtle weapons. We punish with silence and distance. We do guerrilla warfare with gossip. We use sarcasm to display our contempt while at the same time acting as if it's a joke. The point is that though we are separated from David by millennia and culture, our hearts bend away from God in the exact same way. We have all had moments where we want evil for another person. In some form, we have cursed another person in our hearts. And this, this comes on so suddenly. Our, inclina our inclination when we are cursed is to curse when we are dishonored to dishonor which I think reveals just how deep our need is for God's grace in the gospel.
You see, in this fallen world, we all have to confess that we can be both victim and victimizer. Because hurting people will hurt people. Unless. Unless there is an intervention. Unless there is another person who shows us how to live differently. And this is where Abigail, Nabal's wife, enters into the story. Abigail, on hearing the news from her servant, has some choices to make. She had the means to flee with the people that she cared about most, or Abigail could have sold out her husband Nabal and made a deal with King David. Both legitimate options. But what she chooses instead was the past that blesses everyone. Both the the guilty and the innocent in the story. She rises up to inhabit all of the wisdom and the power that she can. She uses everything at her disposal for good. And we see Abigail descend from the hills as a lone woman moving towards this army of 400 battle-worn men, bloodthirsty with swords strapped to their sides. And she has a plan. Like Jacob meeting Esau, she knows that a gift softens wrath. And so she gives instructions to send a generous gift of food to prepare the way ahead of her. But now, she is there alone. The situation is precarious. She is incredibly vulnerable. And she gets off her donkey and she falls at David's feet in front of him. And she essentially says to David, looking up, look, you and I both know that Nabal is a fool, so you deal with me. He wronged you. Forgive me in his place. I honor you as God's anointed king. And when you arrive on your throne, you don't want to be carrying the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged yourself. Now, this is not a minor point. Even David, the Lord's chosen king, doesn't get to sin and get away with it. Later in his life, for killing one righteous man, the Lord punishes him with heartache and public dishonor and upheaval of his kingdom. So what do you think the cost is going to be if David would have slaughtered this entire household because of his wounded pride? And in this moment... Abigail is a cool hand on a hot head. Her argument wins him over and he blesses God for Abigail's intervention so that he would not violate God's command nor compromise his throne. David rightly recognizes that salvation has come through her. And so she saves David, and she also saves Nabal, who likely never did her any good except when it benefited him. But she also stands in the gap to save those in the story who who have far less power than she, who would have lost their lives because of Nabal's arrogance and David's quick temper. She is, without question, the hero of the story. And where Abigail stands in this story, she is the foreshadow of the one who will come. Jesus, who on the cross says of his enemies, Father, forgive them, for they have no idea what they are doing. She points to the one who steps in front of us 
to receive the consequence for every time that we have puffed out our chest and made someone pay. She points to the one who said, I will take their guilt, who will walk through death so that death would not have the last word for you and me. And let's be clear. It is not fair that Abigail has, has, has lived or Nabal has lived his life wreaking havoc while other people like Abigail have to clean up his mess. It's not fair that Abigail has to contend with David at his worst. But church, her brilliance, her brilliance comes in bringing goodness to overcome evil. And in fact, that's the command we hear again and again in Scripture. Don't repay evil with evil, but with good. It's mine to repay, says the Lord. And he also gives us the promise. I will work all things, good and bad, for the good of those who walk according to my purposes. You see, the temptation to strike back, to repay evil with evil, is all about forgetting. It is about forgetting who our God is. We don't need to take vengeance because our God said he will take care of that. We don't need to panic in the face of a lack of provision because our God is an ultimate provider. And it's not just about forgetting who God is. It is also about forgetting who we are. We don't need to jealously guard our reputation because we are beloved and accepted by our creator. We are his covenant children, the object of his love, even while we are sinners in need of grace. But this is David. He forgets. But Abigail, like Jesus, clings to the remembrance of who God is and who she is in the face of temptation. And you know, and over and over in David's life, he needs someone like Abigail to point him to the path of wisdom when his gaze becomes too small and narrow. And church, we are meant to do that for each other as well. We need people around us who have the aroma of Jesus, who we invite to help us learn how to walk like him and who help us not forget. And I think the alternative to walking with Jesus is to be a people who are shriveled, who are myopic, who live in a land of scarcity, who are busy protecting, protecting our bit of dirt that we don't hear Jesus offering us the whole world. To walk with him is to take up the kingdom calling to do good with all of the resources and power at our disposal. We do good on behalf of those who have less power and resources than we do, but we also do good to our enemies. We do it without distinction. And we trust our Father for ultimate judgment of evil. Now how this plays out is mysterious, but what we do know is that following this command brings life. It brings life. It builds our spiritual muscles. It makes us into a people whose eyes are sharp enough to see the promised land and who bring shalom into whatever landscape we are planted in. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, our prayer is simple this morning. 
And yet it is not something that we can do on our own or alone. We need you to teach us how to cling to Jesus and how to love like King Jesus so that we might be able to extend that love to others, even our enemies. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.